many of you get them confused, I would imagine just about everybody in the audience would raise their hand at some point. And yet these are two distinct men who served a period of time together, and yet they could not be more distinct from one another. Lockyer's All the Men of the Bible says Elijah was a prophet of the wilderness. Elisha was a prince of the court. Elijah had no settled home. Elisha enjoyed the peace of home. Elijah was known by his long hair and shaggy mantle. Elisha by his staff and his bald head. Elijah was mainly prophetical. Elisha's work was mainly miraculous. Elijah's ministry was one of stern denunciation. Elisha's task was that of teaching and winning. Elijah was a rebuker of kings. Elisha was a friend and an admirer. Elijah was a messenger of vengeance. Elisha, a messenger of mercy. Elijah represented exclusiveness. Elisha stood for comprehension. Elijah was fierce, fiery, energetic. Elisha was gentle, sympathetic, and simple. Elijah was a solitary figure. Elisha was more social. Elijah had an extraordinary disappearance from earth. And Elisha's death was ordinary. As I mentioned, that comes from Lockyer's All in the Bible, pages 106 and 107. For myself, when I think about Elijah and Elisha, the best way I can think of it is to compare them to John the Baptist and Jesus. If you'll remember, in Matthew chapter 11, verses 18 and 19, Jesus himself said, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a wine-bibber or glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, the wisdom is justified by our children. What Jesus was saying is John had a unique personality which denied a lot of stuff, and you thought, oh, he's crazy. And then the Son of Man, Jesus comes along and he teaches, and he eats with, he has joyful associations with others, and they say, you know, this man, he's just a wine-bibber and a glutton. Some people don't like either way. They didn't like either Elijah or Elisha. And both of these men served the Lord with their talents. And Elisha had a very important role in God's plan. For this morning, I want us to look at three things. I want us to look, first of all, at the man of God. That's the way he's referred to. Then I want to look at a miracle with a message. That's chapter 5. And then finally, a message from our maker. There's something to learn from this section of scripture. So let's begin. If you'll open your Bibles, we'll begin at 1 Kings chapter 19. And I want you to see the picture of Elisha's beginning of his role. Because as Elijah is sent back to deal with Ahab and Jezebel... He is told there's three people he's going to have to deal with. 
The first one is he's going to anoint Haziel, king of Syria. He's going to anoint Jehu, king of Israel. And then he's going to anoint Elisha as a prophet in his place. And that's what you read in verses 15 and 16. These three places are important, however. When you read about his call, what is interesting to me is how strong of a break he makes with his past. In verses 19 through 21, it says, Elijah departed from there and found Elisha the son of Shaphat, who was plying with twelve oxen of yoke, yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the twelfth. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? You think about what occurred. Elijah, the great prophet, comes and said, You are chosen. And he's plowing with these oxen. He said, well, just let me go back and see my mother and my father for just a little bit. Let me kiss them and say goodbye. Elijah's response is, do you know what I've done to you? Just go back again. We would say, I don't need you. But I want you to notice the response of Elisha in verse 21. So Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment. And gave it to the people and they ate. And then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. You want to talk about a break with the past? You're plowing with the yoke of oxen, the twelfth of the pairs. What he does, he slays them. You won't plow those ox anymore. Number two, he burns their equipment to boil their flesh. He's not going to be plowing with oxen or that yoke again. Because he's going to be a prophet of God. He craved to be like Elijah. Elijah was his mentor. Elijah was his master in the sense of teacher. And he wanted to be like him. In chapter 2 of 2 Kings, in verse 9, And so it was when he had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what may I do for you that when I before I'm taken away from you? And Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. I want to be like you and I want to have a double portion of your abilities here. What happens? You go down to verse 13. He comes back to the Jordan River and when he arrives at the Jordan River, he takes that mantle that has been given to him. He hits the water there and it parts for him just exactly like it did for Elijah when they went that direction. Oh, he's he's now... A miracle worker. And if you'll notice the latter part of verse 15, it says, When the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. He's like him in so many ways. But what follows to me is so interesting as you go into 2 Kings and you are introduced to Elisha, And what happens is one miracle right after another. 
You begin, first of all, with this healing of the bad water. In verses 19 through 22, the water is bringing about death and the barrenness of women. And they tell Elisha, and he takes and pours salt into the source of the water. It is healed, and there's no more death. There's no more barrenness from it. Or as you continue on in chapter 4, there's a widow who is so poor that she and her sons are about to be sold into slavery. And she comes and pleads with the prophet. What he tells her to do is to go and get vessels from her neighbors and her friends, and she does so. And then she is to pour the oil from her vessel into those, and she pours and she pours and she fills every vessel that's been brought. And when the last vessel is filled, that's when it stops multiplying. Elisha tells her to take that, sell it, provide for her and her son's needs. Come to chapter 4, verses 8 through 37. It's a real interesting section. What makes it so interesting, there's a Shunammite woman, and uh, Elisha passes by that way, and they say, you know what? He comes by here a lot. We'll just make a room for him. And they made a room on the roof of their house, and every time Elisha came that way, and he asked his servant, which is Gehazi, by the way, and what can we do for her? Well, she has no son. Her husband's old. She has nobody to, to look forward for a future generation. So Elisha tells her, you're going to have a child. She's so excited. She has that little boy. That little boy grows up and goes out to work one day with the father. And as he's going out, he says, oh, my head, my head. And he carries him back to the mother and the little boy dies in her arms. And now she's stricken with sadness as much as she had enthusiasm for the having of that little boy. And she comes to Elisha and Elisha raises her son. Then you get to chapter 4 verses 38 through 44. Probably one of my favorite sections of the book of 2 Kings. There's a school called the School for the Sons of the Prophets. And they're going to make a stew for all those men who are training to be prophets. One of the young men goes out and he gathers wild gourds and cuts them up and puts them into the stew. And when they start eating it, they say, Oh, prophet, there's death in the pot, death in the stew. And Elisha comes and he heals and purifies the stew so that nobody dies from it. Oh, you just see one miracle right after another. But then you get to chapter 5. And you're introduced to a man by the name of Naaman. And we're going to focus on that in just a moment. One more that will take place. A man borrows an axe. The head comes off the axe, goes into the water. And Elisha causes the axe head to float so that he can be able to recover what he had borrowed a man of miracles, but even more than that, he died in his old age. Chapter 13, verse 14 says he got sick, the sickness of which he would die. He is buried, but what's interesting is you keep reading, there's some raiders coming through and they're in the process of having a funeral, a burial. And they put the man's body in Elisha's tomb just as it touches Elisha's bones. A man springs back to life, even in death. Elisha was a man of miracles, but he was the man of God. 
more than 20 times in this little short section, Elisha is called the man of God. Now, let's take and zero in on one chapter, on one section of one chapter, and that's chapter 5. And let's look at that miracle with a meaning to it. I've preached on 2 Kings 5 several times over the years. I'm going to try to approach it a little bit differently in this lesson. I want us to observe, first of all, that he was a sick sinner. In verse 1 it says, Now Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. Because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria, he also was a mighty man of valor, but a leper. Now what we learn, he was valorous, a man of courage. Is it come time to go into the battle? He didn't have any problem getting out in front and leading. He also was valuable and victorious. He was worth a lot to his master. If you're the king, you want a commander of your army who can lead and can win battles. But he was a victim of leprosy. Now, leprosy defines all kinds of skin diseases in the Old Testament. But among the worst are those where your skin begins to literally rot off your bones. It's a disease of great pain that a person might have to go through. But there was more than just the physical pain. There was the mental pain. Because anyone who had leprosy, when someone was coming toward them, they would have to cry out, unclean, unclean. You can't get near me. To tell you how bad it is, you go to 2 Chronicles chapter 26 and verse 21, and we read King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. You imagine not ever having anybody hug you, not have any of your family kiss you, not having any physical contact with anyone but having to stay by yourself all the time, the mental anguish of that. Well, here is Naaman. He is a leper. But there is an opportunity for him to be healed because this young woman who had come from Israel and was now serving in the king's house, he wants to be able to provide, but there's a number of mistakes that's going to take place. The king of Syria and his commander, Naaman, are going to make some very bold mistakes. The first one we'll observe is found in verse 5, and that is he thought he could buy healing. Listen, the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Folks, that's a lot of money. He thought that he could send enough money down there and that Naaman would be healed. You know something that's a reality of this life? You can be incredibly wealthy and you cannot stop your own death. Many of you know I enjoy using Apple products. The man that started Apple computers was a man by the name of Steve Jobs. He died a few years ago. It was very sad to see the last few months of Steve Jobs' life 
One of the last pictures of him standing frail, almost looked like a skeleton, wearing a robe. And yet this man's a billionaire. He could have paid for any amount of medical treatment he so desired, but he couldn't stop death. Couldn't stop the illness. You and I have to realize that the king of Syria thinks he can send enough money, he can buy it. But the second thing is the king of Israel, he thought the king of Israel might be able to do something. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then he brought a letter to the king of Israel that said, Now be advised when this letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman, my servant, that you may heal him of his leprosy. That you may heal him of his leprosy. You know how the king of Israel responded? Just like Tony would. What does he expect me to do? Am I God or in the place of God? That's what he said in verse 7. Evidently what he's wanting to do is a quarrel with me. He thought, Naaman did, that he knew a better way. In verses 9 through 13, Naaman arrives at Elisha's door. And Elisha sends his servant out. And tells him to go and wash seven times in the Jordan and be clean. Verse 11, but Naaman became furious. And went away and said, indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of his Lord his God. And wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. You see, he was looking for Benny Hinn. Looking for Ernest Angley. All these fake healers who come and wave their hands and scream and cry and holler. No, that's not the way it happens. He thinks there's got to be a better way. In fact, he goes on to say, Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? I would presume that's so as far as the quality. Having been to the Jordan River several times, I can tell you it's a dirty, nasty river. Not a place most people won't get into. You go wash seven times in the Jordan, you'll be clean. He went away in a rage, verse 12. And then his servant came to remind him, you know, you could have done more if he had asked you. Why not just listen? Why not do what the prophet has told you? And then in verse 14, when he complied, when he did what the prophet told him, it said, so he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. You see, mistakes were made, but at least he ultimately did what he was supposed to do. But now that's not the end of the story. Because the servant of Elisha, Gehazi, himself made some mistakes. We often stop there and say, there's the lesson. No, there's more to it than that. He thought that the healings could be sold. When you get to verse 20, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master has spared Naaman the Syrian while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I'll run after him and take something from him. Oh, you know, if you're going to get the blessing of being healed, you ought to at least pay for it. And in his idea, I'm the one that ought to get it. 
but he thought that he could be deceitful as well. Deceitful both to Naaman and to Elisha. Because when you go to verse 22, and he arrives where Naaman's at, and he asks for the stuff, he said, my master has sent me, saying, he didn't do any such thing. Elisha never sent Gehazi. In fact, Elisha refused it because he knew that was not in God's will. But when he returns in verses uh, 24 and 25, when he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand, stored them away in the house, and then he let the men go and they departed. Now he went in and stood before his master and Elisha said to him, Where did you go, Gehazi? He said, Your servant did not go anywhere. That's his second lie. I can tell you one thing. Gehazi is not going to be the same nature as Elisha. He has a different attitude. He has a different personality. He thought he knew a better way to do it, and that's wrong. And as a consequence, he was afflicted with the leprosy that was on Naaman. Now, with just a few minutes that I have left, I'd like to talk about what do we learn here? What do we understand out of this passage? And what are we going to do with it? It would be a great mistake to just see this as a series of isolated events. You know, when you read, okay, well, he just did this, he just did that, and this, we're just reading history. No, it's so much more than that. In Luke chapter 4, verse 27, Jesus said, And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. But none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Out of all these lepers who lived during that time, there was only one of them that was cleansed. So it's not just about working miracles. There's a meaning to it. Now let me see if I can pull the meaning out. Do you remember going back to chapter 19, verses 15 through 17? I didn't include verse 15. Where he was told to go and anoint Haziel king of Syria, Jehu the king of Israel, and Elisha the prophet in his place. That's what was said to Elijah. Why did he say that? That follows where Elijah had said, Lord, it's just me alone. I'm the only one trying to stand up. And God said, I've got 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal nor kissed his hand. What God was saying is, I've got other people to do the jobs I've called them for, and you're going to be involved with three of them. God had a plan for dealing with all of this. Because it, it's going to be, whoever comes along, Eli, uh, Haziel's going to kill them, and if they escape, Jehu's going to kill them, and if they escape Jehu, then Elisha was going to kill them. Both Elijah and Elisha had the job of ridding Israel of idolatrous worship. They were to get rid of Baal worship. And you start thinking, each of these men had their role, their part to play. Do you realize sometimes there may be someone else who's doing something over here and someone else doing something over here, but we're all trying to contribute for the same purpose? Let me give you an illustration. Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, 
but God gave the increase. Sometimes it's a team effort to convert someone. Sometimes it's a team effort to try to bring somebody back who's been lost. Sometimes it's a team effort to face down evil in our community. 1 Kings 19 verse 39. When you have the um, contest on Mount Carmel and you have the response of the people, they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. That's with the work of Elijah. 2 Kings 5.15 says, and he, that is Naaman, returned to the man of God and he and all his aides, and he came and stood before him and he said, Indeed, now I know there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. I want you to let that sink in for just a moment. Here is the commander of the Syrian army who says there's no God but the God of Israel. You think about where that puts him to influence the coming King Haziel. The right man at the right place at the right time. That's the reason why Naaman the leper was healed. Even the mockings, you know, someone said, well, you can't talk about Elisha without talking about his bald head. Even the mockings of those young men has to be understood in the light of the context. You'll remember as he was coming from Bethel, As he was going up the road, some of the youth of the city came and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head. Go up, bald head. And somebody might say, Well, they're just making fun of him because he's lost his hair. No, it's more than that. You go to 2 Chronicles 36, 16. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against the people, till there was no remedy. What do I see? I'm seeing these young men and their lack of respect, not just for the prophet Elisha, but for the words of the Lord and the man who was delivering them. The seed of truth had been planted in the heart of an influential man in Syria. Chapter 5, verses 15 through 19 explains how dedicated he was. When Elisha would not take all of the stuff that he brought, he said, can I ask for something? And what he said is, I want to take something back with me. Let's pick up with verse 17. Then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth. For your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. He's wanting to build an altar. He's wanting to build an altar with dirt that came from the Holy Land, if you will. He says, I don't want to bow down to anybody else but God. There are some roles that I'll have to play as, as a part of my role as a servant to the king. But he says... My heart is with the Lord. First lesson, see all this working together. Second lesson, mistakes are often made in religion. 
Where do all these denominations come from? Where do you get people who want to do this this way and that way? Where do we get all this performance worship and entertainment and things like that? It's from people who want to do it their way. We tend to think that money can buy anything. Money cannot buy your salvation. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. That's not what paid for your salvation. Nor is the work that the Lord does up for sale. Simon the sorcerer was told in Acts 18, Act 8, verses 18 through 20, when he offered money for the ability to lay hands on folks, Peter said, your money perish with you because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. It's not up for sale. We're told in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 5, those who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, we ought to withdraw ourselves from them. Not be like Balaam, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. A second mistake they will often make in religion is we're often going to the wrong person for help. We're generally out looking for people who will tell us what we want to hear. You know, Second Timothy chapter four speaks about those people who will, because they have itching ears, will heap to themselves teachers after their own lust and be turned aside to fables. Jeremiah 23, 16 says, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. We don't need to be going and listening to people who do not cite book, chapter, and verse and say, This is where in the Bible God teaches this. We're told in Hosea 5, 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob. Yet he cannot cure you, nor can he heal you of your wound. Who are you going to? For the answers of life. To the law and to the testimony is what Isaiah chapter 8 would say. Another mistake we make is we often reject the commandments of God because we think we know better. I've heard people say to me many times, you're, you're, you're studying with them, you get to the topic of baptism. Well, I think, I, I, I just don't think the Lord will require me to be baptized. I just don't think I have to do that. Luke 7 and verse 30 says, But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. Let me ask you a question. Do you think you can reject God and not do what He tells you to do and still go to heaven? In just a minute or two, when we sing the invitation song, if you've not been baptized for the remission of your sins... Here's what you need to do. You need to walk out of that aisle. You need to come sit on the front seat. I'm ready to become a Christian. I know I need to be baptized. I want to be baptized. Romans 10, 1 through 3, Paul talks about those people of Israel who had a desire. Paul says they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. 
For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. Elijah and Elisha, two powerful preachers of God's message, different as daylight and dark, yet both of them of great ability and the right place at the right time. Both of them had one message. There is one God. Exodus chapter 23 through 5 says, you're going to have no other gods before me. God's it. There's no other one. We learn from Matthew 4.10 when Jesus confronted the devil. He said, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. That's what Elijah said. That's what Elisha says. That's what any faithful proclaimer of God's word will say. There was a plan of salvation for Naaman. That plan was go dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River and you'll be clean. God has a plan for you too. Be immersed in water for the remission of sins, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. You need to do that? You need to be restored? Well, if you are ready right now, why not come as together we stand and sing?